Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last week, John Truett began discussing the theological framework of dispensationalism, especially the mid-Acts dispensationalism taught by The Way International. He pointed out some flaws that got his attention and made him explore the issue more deeply. In the course of his research, Truett discovered another way of approaching Scripture known as covenantalism. In this episode, he explains his covenantal approach with special emphasis on the new covenant, including the responsibilities and benefits of this new way of relating to God. Here now is episode 312, Evaluating Dispensationalism Part 2, with John Truett. John Truett, welcome back. So glad to have you today. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be back. Last time we talked about dispensationalism, we talked about your experience, and I shared a little bit about my own experience and some of the problems, how this system, this grid, this interpretation strategy or hermeneutic, how it has changed over time, over the decades since the 1830s when it first came out in the Plymouth Brethren to the turn of the 20th century where the Schofield, the C.I. Schofield Reference Bible really took off and, and started selling like hotcakes. And uh, we didn't mention this, but Dallas Theological Seminary was founded and, and I think still to a large degree is known for its stand on dispensationalism and a lot of other Bible college and institutions in the United States you know, have, have at least in some part of their history been uh, dispensationalist in orientation and how this really has developed from the classic period uh, up until about 1950, the revised period up until about 1980, and that we're now in what's called the progressive dispensationalist period, not to be confused with uh, politics or social issues. <laughs> They're probably not progressive on those. Uh, no, no. But it's just a different kind of progressive. It's a progressive in the sense of progress through scripture, I, I think, would that be a fair statement? Yeah, bo- both of the progressive covenantalism and progressive dispensationalism, the progressive there is referring to the progression of God's uh, plan and revealing and you know how things are occurring. Yeah, okay. Well, we didn't, might, might as well just clear that up in case that is in someone's mind. But let's talk about today covenantalism. And uh, how would you like to get started in doing that? Sure. So, uh, you know, covenantalism, again, it's, a, it's also a theological framework. There, there's an, uh, a number of different forms, reformed, classic or traditional reformed dispensationalism or uh, covenantalism, new covenantalism, progressive covenantalism. And without going into the, the detailed history, and, uh, and to be honest, I am not as knowledgeable uh, on the history on, on that side of things. But the thing about covenantalism that for some time has, has attracted me is not so much those things. It's, it's simply the idea that approaching how we're going to understand the framing of the scriptures by covenants makes more sense to me than by administrations. The administration concept, um, while you know, I'm, it's perfectly obvious that, yeah, God has worked in different ways with people over time, we we need to be able to explain, for instance, why is it that the people of God were required under um, Abraham, uh, that time period in that covenant, to circumcise the males, believers, and now we know in uh, this time period, in quote, this administration or under this covenant, we don't have to do that, right? You need some way of understanding how those things are framed uh, to make sense of all that. So to me, the covenant framework, just in its basic, not to utilize new covenantalism or progressive covenantalism or anything like that, just the raw concept of framing the scriptures by the covenants in the scriptures, to me, makes more sense, right? In fact, I would say that if even more organic. It, it absolutely is more organic. It's more scriptural. E- even the term administration, where that comes from, oikonomia, uh, in the scripture, it's not used very often, right? And uh, and even then, 
you could even say that it doesn't mean at all what is meant by dispensationalists. I think, for instance, uh, I believe it's in Ephesians, uh, where Paul uses that term, the administration of grace um, given to me. I, I think personally that that's referring to the fact that it's not the administration of grace. It's that he was given by grace um, the stewardship that he personally had as a minister. So that's a we can argue about that kind of stuff. But the idea is there's just not a whole lot about that. The concept might be somewhat obvious in Scripture. Sure, it is the different time periods, different ways that God worked. But those are caused by the covenants, right? That it's the covenants that they stem from, and it's the covenants that determine everything about them. And so why frame it by administrations? Why not frame it by the thing that the scripture frames it by, which is covenants? So just at a, a basic raw level, to me, that seems like the right way to approach it, to say there are, there are covenants in scripture, the covenants change things, what covenant are you a part of? What are the benefits of that covenant? What are the requirements of that covenant? That all is important to you. Those kinds of that's how I think we ought to approach it. And honestly, progressive dispensationalism does that. Um, even though it's referred to as a, a form of dispensationalism, it very much takes into account that why this stuff is all happening this way is because of the covenants. Interesting. Uh, so let's just talk about covenants a little bit. What is a covenant? Describe just a basic covenant and how, how they work. This whole topic is way easier to understand than sometimes people make it out to be. A covenant is a contract. We don't typically use covenant in, in our modern vernacular. We do sometimes. Um, my guess is that if you go, if you have a mortgage and you go read that mortgage contract, you'll find out there's uh, the, the word covenant is used in a number of places in, in a lot of mortgages. A covenant is a contract. We talk about the marriage covenant, right? Well, it's a marriage contract. A contract establishes a relationship between typically two parties. A covenant establishes some form of relationship between two parties. And so a contract, if you think about a covenant as a contract, this becomes very easy to understand as a concept. Everybody understands, typically, if you're an adult, you understand what a contract is, right? A contract is two parties. They're going to uh, put, typically, in our world today, on paper, an agreement that says, okay, we're going to do this agreement for this reason, whatever this reason is. And uh, maybe the, the idea is that uh, we're going to do an agreement where I'm going to be your lawn service, right? Yep, I just I actually just signed such a contract this uh, this past week with our lawn service. There you for go. Next for exactly. next year, right? <laughs> and in that contract, it's going to say a few things, right? It's going to say what the benefits are to each party and what the responsibilities are of each party. So mm -hmm. the benefit to you is you get your landscaping, your lawn taken care of, right? Well, in this case, it's just the fertilizer. Okay. So, and but, you know, they show up so many, so many times a year and they, they ride around in that little doohickey with the spreader and, and they fertilize and, it and they kill the weeds and, and that's about it. Um, but they, you know, they enumerate exactly how many times they're going to do it. Not the exact day, but, you know, uh, the, 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 the number of treatments. And then I, then I sign it. I give them money. They send a guy out to do the thing and that's it. It's a simple contract. Your benefit is a fertilized lawn, right? Um, their benefit is money, right? Profit. So, it, um, but then those are the benefits. Then you have responsibilities, right? They have a responsibility to show up, right? And, and do the work. You have a responsibility of paying them the money for the work. Right. And in a contract, you also have concepts of triggers where, one thing can trigger another. For instance, the contract could be that you have to pay them first, then they'll do the work, or the reverse of that, maybe the contract stipulates they have to do the work, then you have to pay them. So in a contract or a covenant, there's that concept as well. If you do this, then this will happen. If you go back and you read the Mosaic Covenant, there's all kinds of clear language along these lines. God is saying, if you do X, then I will do Y. 
Uh, if you don't do X, if you do Z instead, oh, well, then these bad things are going to happen. Liability in contracts is, is very common as well. If one party breaches the contract in a particular way, these bad things happen, right? That's normal contract language. And covenants are the exact same concept. And so what that means is, since a covenant is a contract, and we all know what contracts are, if you think about contracts, if you take contracts seriously, and you should, you want to read your contracts, you want to understand your benefits, understand the responsibilities of the other party, you want to understand your own responsibilities, and you want to make sure that you carry out those responsibilities in the right way. Uh, as, as the people of God, we're supposed to honor uh, contracts that we sign up to. Jesus talked about that, you know, let your yes be yes, right? If you sign up for something, then you need to fulfill that responsibility. Basic concept, right? You know, uh, fulfill your duty under your contract. So then with that concept in mind, with the and the concept in mind that the scripture, the scripture tells us that God interacts with mankind through covenants. He makes contracts with mankind that involve all those things that we just talked about. It's really, really important then for a Christian to understand the contract that you and I have signed up for, right? That God has made with us, which is the new covenant. And so understanding the stipulations of the new covenant, understanding our rights, our benefits under the new covenant, those are really important. Understanding our responsibilities under the new covenant, those are really, really important. So the subject regardless of how you then use this as a theological, forget the theological frameworks for a minute, just the concept of understanding that we're under a covenant, that when you became a believer in Christ, you you signed a, a contract uh, in Jesus's blood, and there are rights and benefits and responsibilities, and it behooves you to understand what those are. Okay, well, let's let's go there. Where do you think we should look to get started in understanding the new covenant. You know, we talked a little bit about this, uh, the idea just, first of all, which covenant are we a part of? That uh, Obviously, that's the first question. Are we under the Mosaic covenant? Uh, yes, no. Are we under the new covenant? Yes, no, that kind of thing. And as you read through the, you know, the New Testament, what you find is Jesus instituting the new covenant uh, at the Last Supper, saying this, hey, I want you to, to do this. I want you to remember me. This is the new covenant, right? And uh, and then you find in Second uh, Corinthians 3, let me read it here, uh, verses 4 through 6, uh, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. So we find that, you know, the new covenant was promised in the Old Testament. Uh, God got tired of the Israelites breaching the Mosaic covenant. And he says, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant. And then he did that. And that's the covenant that we sign up for. So then you want to ask yourself, okay, I need to know where is that covenant? What, what how, how do I understand that covenant? And it's unfortunate that our Bible is divided into the New Testament and to the Old Testament. I'm sure you're aware of this, Sean. Testament is the word for covenant, right? It's a, it's a word right. for covenant. It's just the Latin, yeah. um, from the Latin testamentum. Yes, exactly. It's, it, it, is, it means the exact same thing. It's not a testimony, right, in the way that we use that word. It is a covenant. So really, it's... Old Covenant, New Covenant. Now, Old Covenant is probably not a good way to, to, to think about it because there are a number of, of covenants in the Old Testament. But New Covenant, yeah, that is a pretty good way of, of thinking about it. You know, the New Testament is the New Covenant. And everything going on there um, is regarding the New Covenant. Um, I'd like to put it this way, that the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached throughout the New Testament. It begins with John. Luke tells us um, in, uh, I believe, chapter 16, verse 16, that the law and the prophets were preached until John. And then beginning at John, the gospel of the kingdom of God was preached. And we see Jesus preaching that. And then you go into Acts and you see the apostles uh, and evangelists in Acts, uh, like Philip, 
preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. We see Paul preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. You go all the way to the very, very end of the book of Acts. And what is Paul doing there in Rome? He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see a consistency throughout the, the whole of the, the period of the New Testament, uh, of the apostolic uh, New Testament, of a preaching of the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So there's a consistency there, right? The apostles are, you know, in the letters uh, of the rest of the New Testament beyond the gospels, they're just doing the same thing. They're preaching what Jesus, they're fulfilling the commandment of Matthew 28, teach everything that I commanded you, right? So that's all that Paul is doing. He's preaching the gospel that Jesus taught him. And the gospel of the kingdom of God is the gospel of the new covenant, right? Because that's the covenant we're under is the new covenant. So the good news that we're talking about, it is the new covenant, right? It's the good news of the new covenant. So they really kind of go hand in hand. When we go through the new Testament and we're thinking about the kingdom of God and we're a part of the kingdom of God, how did we become part of the kingdom of God? How was this kingdom established? It was established in the new, in the new covenant. And this is the, uh, just like in uh, the, the Mosaic Covenant, God establishes a certain relationship with these people, setting them up as a nation. They are um, under this covenant as this nation, as we are a nation uh, under this kingdom of God that was established in the New Covenant. So that's the idea. So really, the answer to that is the whole of the New Testament is teaching us about the new covenant, much like the, the books of Moses, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, there's a whole bunch of stuff all throughout there, not just one little piece. You know, you have to, to go into a number of books to get the whole thing. You have to do the same thing. But I, I, I would say this and, and wrap up on this point with this thing that I find that the best place to begin to understand the stipulations of the new covenant are go, going to the sermons of Jesus. That the sermons of Jesus are teaching us. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, right? He's not teaching the law and the prophets. Luke tells us that, right? He's teaching us the kingdom of God, right? The gospel of the kingdom of God. So those sermons are telling us the stipulations of the new covenant. All right. Well, just uh, before we get to that, let's talk about some of the benefits of the New Covenant. And if we wanted to look at the Old Covenant, the law that God gave to Moses, we can just flip to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and find the blessings there. God's going to make it rain on time. Uh, he's going to take care of health and prosperity, those kinds of basic things that a nation would need. Uh, what are the benefits of the New Covenant? So... I'll list off a few, but I, I, I find this a, a, a funny topic um, when you're talking about contracts, because with contracts, whether you're talking about the new covenant or any, any contract, people like to focus on the benefits and not really think too much about the responsibilities. Yes. And um, if you think about a, a marriage contract, this is especially true, right? You know, you're going to enter into that marriage covenant, that marriage contract you're doing a lot of thinking about the benefits of that contract and you're probably not even aware of the multitude of responsibilities you're about to enter into. And people might even take it more seriously getting married if they thought more deeply about the responsibilities. So I think for most Christians who've been Christians for any amount of time, they're pretty aware of what the benefits are, but so everlasting life, right? That's the, probably the number one biggest benefit of the new covenant. That's pretty big. Yeah. And it's huge, right? That you are promised under the new covenant that when Christ returns and raises the dead uh, in Christ, you're going to live forever from that point forward. That um, That's a pretty big benefit. Another one that I think people skip over a little bit in a lot of cases in Christianity is the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is a benefit of the new covenant. When you join the new covenant, when you sign that new covenant uh, by confessing your faith in Christ, um, making him Lord, Peter's you know, formula in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, so forth. You had, a, you had a great podcast on that. That you are promised, right, at the end of that in Acts, uh, in Acts 2, when Peter talks about that, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. 
that is a benefit. Right. And it's a bigger benefit than I think people realize or give credit to. That is what enabled to Jesus to do what he was doing when he's performing miracles and healing the sick and raising the dead. It was that Holy Spirit that allowed him to hear God clearly um, throughout his ministry, exactly what he needs to do. When he said, I only do what I see the Father doing, I'm, I'm only saying what the Father is saying, right? That's because he had Holy Spirit, and and he's just listening and through that Holy Spirit to, to God, and, and then he's able to do those things. Uh, I just recently taught a teaching I called How to Move Mountains, and that's the idea. It's because we have Holy Spirit, and if we obey the, uh, what God wants us to do and be on his plan, or we pray and he says, okay, yeah, we'll do that. We can move mountains and do all kinds of other of great things for the Lord. That the Holy Spirit is a really, really, really big deal. The Old Testament believers, man, they, you know, they'd have killed to have what we have. You know, they knew what kind of great power consisted in, in a person of, of having that. So that's a big deal. Um, being part of the promises to Israel. So Israel had, you know, Abraham's promises to his descendants uh, were a big deal. And the, uh, the benefits of living in the land uh, in paradise, because we're not just going to have everlasting life. We're going to have everlasting life in a paradise, in a land where there's no hunger, no disease, no war, you know, all of those good things. Those are promises. Um, another one that's for right now is God and Jesus making their home with you. How cool is it? that God is with you all of the time, right? Not someplace you have to go to some building or a temple or whatever. Nope. Wherever you are, that's where he is. And, and you can have a relationship with him right then and there and talk to him and him talk to you and all that kind of good stuff because you have Holy Spirit. And then the, the last one I would say, and I think this is a, another one that it's a little overlooked as a benefit of being part of the new covenant. that was much more difficult for the people in the old covenant is the power to overcome sin that again, because we have the Holy spirit in us that God has, I believe this, this is the way to understand this, that how God has written his law in our hearts is to give us the Holy spirit guiding us, leading us, speaking to us, trying to prevent us, you know, all that kind of stuff, convicting us that we have a tremendous ability to overcome sin because of what we have received as part of the new covenant. Okay. Very good. I had just a quick comment on the Holy Spirit. Uh, obviously, there's a lot to that. And that text you read before, verse 6 there, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it says, He has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I mean, in, in this chapter here, we have a real contrast between the laws engraved on stones, which refers to the law that God gave to Moses, what we call the Torah, and the New Covenant, which is really, I don't know, powered, if you want to call it that, by the Spirit. And uh, we certainly see a good contrast in Romans as well. If we look at Romans 7 to Romans 8, Romans 7 being uh, Paul's struggle as a, a Torah-observant Jew, just can't seem to do the right thing, <laughs> no matter how much he wants to. And then in chapter 8, suddenly what enters the picture? Well, it's it's this new reality that, that is available post-Pentecost where the Holy Spirit has gone public, and it's available to old men and, and slaves and women and men, everybody. And um, he's suddenly he's starting to achieve victory in mortifying the flesh and uh, some of these things you said. But sometimes people will bring up the issue of how the Spirit is a pledge or a guarantee. And uh, they, they will say, oh, well, the Spirit uh, guarantees that you're going to have eternal life. And I know this is kind of a tangential issue, uh, but I, I'm curious to hear your take on responding to that kind of a statement that um, because someone has received the Spirit or um, been baptized with the Spirit, or another term used often is regenerated, uh, that as a result of that, they can they can never be lost. Um, it, it, but that, that's not part of your understanding of the New Covenant, right? Yeah, no, the, um, the, the New Testament is quite clear. Jesus is very, very clear, you know, in John 15, for instance, that um, you have to obey his commandments. And really, the, um, the, the problem is in applying too much to the idea of a guarantee, right? 
Well, let me, let me just read out the text real fast. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 1.21, and it says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And uh, then the other one is Ephesians 1.14, the Spirit which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So uh, we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that is our guarantee of the inheritance. The idea of a, a, of a guarantee, it doesn't contain the concept of it's going to happen no matter what. You could have that if in an individual circumstance the guarantee stated that, but the idea of a guarantee doesn't contain that natively. Right. Uh, a guarantee. And we know this. This is this is not something foreign to us uh, in the modern world. Let's say, for instance, you put down uh, guarantee money on purchasing a house. Right. OK. Down payment. Yeah. So basically you're you know, it's earnest money. Right. Um, and so you, you put that money down. What you've done is you it's a kind of security. You said, yes, this is guaranteeing that I can, I can buy this house, right? But many things can happen in the meantime that cause that not to take place, right? Um, it is possible, for instance, for the person who you know, was, was selling the house to back out of it and give you your money back. You know, those kinds of things can occur. It's not, that, that's part of the problem is we bring to it this idea that, oh, a guarantee, that means it's gonna happen no matter what, no. You have to understand the stipulations of the contract that the guarantee is a part of, right? So if everything goes right, then it'll happen. Exactly. Guarantee guarantees that if everything goes according to plan, yeah. Yeah, and the guarantee is in the sense that I am guaranteeing you that this is going to happen if these other things happen. That's the common way a guarantee works. You know, maybe a, like a warranty is a kind of guarantee. I'm guaranteeing that I will fix this computer for you if it breaks. But then there's a stipulation in the guarantee. But I'm not going to do that if you pour coffee all over it. Uh-huh. So there's a, there's a qualification to that guarantee. So anytime you have qualifications to the guarantee, well, now you have to understand what those qualifications are. And there's all kinds of qualifications in the New Testament regarding this guarantee. Jesus, get, again, lays it out in the Gospels, and especially in John 15, that you have, to, you have to obey his commandment to love one another. And if you don't do that, then you're going to lose that guarantee, right? And, uh, and we see, you know, Paul, when he, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says that you're saved by the Gospel if you continue in faith. Hebrews 3, I think, is very, very powerful on this subject. Uh, because it, it shows the same kind of comparison with the Israelites uh, leaving Egypt, going to the promised land, right? God had been telling them, hey, I'm going to send you into the promised land, right? Just follow me, um, do what I tell you to do, come on out, I'm going to give you this land. Well, you know what? A bunch of them didn't get it because um, they didn't fulfill their part of that bargain, right? And of that contract. A guarantee isn't just doesn't just stand on its own. It's a component of the overall contract. And in our contract of the new covenant, there are stipulations of how that guarantee doesn't happen for you. Um, that if you, as in Hebrews 3, develop an evil, unbelieving heart, you will be rejected. Right. Yeah. Going back to the house analogy, I'm just trying to think this through. So like, let's say I put a down payment down on a house and let's say I put down, you know, a few thousand dollars, whatever it is. And then when the day comes, you know, that person has received that guarantee. But when the, when the closing date comes, let's say they don't show up to the meeting. The, you know, the seller doesn't show up to the meeting. And that's because they've just decided that in the end, they'd rather just keep their house and not sell it anymore. And uh, so now we've got a problem 
you know, I've given them this money, but they didn't show up to the meeting. So what do I do? <laughs> you know, I could, I could sue them or I could ask them to, to give it back or, but I can't force them to continue with the deal because until, until you hit the closing, you're, <laughs> it's their house. They can take it off the market whenever they want. Right. So, yeah. uh, God gives us this Holy spirit. It's his guarantee. He's going to show up at the closing. Uh, he's going to do everything he needs to do to get that to happen. But if we don't show up, if we say, ah, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to change my mind on this, this whole kingdom thing, this whole living for God thing. I'm just going to go and go back to my old ways and, and just reject it all. That's me refusing to show up. That's not, that's not on God. Yeah. He's still, he's still going to bring the kingdom. He's still going to send Jesus. Uh, it's just that I've forfeited my spot in it because I wasn't willing to remain within the boundaries of that covenant or contract with him. So yeah, I think this is a good way to look at it. This is not, uh, a, this is not a hard concept to understand either. If you think about if you owned a church building, uh, let's say that your family had been a part of, but for whatever reason, maybe, you know, the church moved and they, they sold the building and for nostalgia purposes, your parents bought the building and they thought maybe they'd turn it into a wedding chapel or something like that. Right. And that never really worked out. And you inherited this church building in this land, but you know, it's, it, it's been a part of your family and a part of this, this church history. And, and you love, you love the spot and all that kind of stuff. And somebody comes along and they say, you know, I'd really like to, to, to buy that property in that land. And, and you're like, okay, yeah, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to sell it. I, um, I could use the money and, and so they say, so you say, what are you going to do with it? And they said, well, we're thinking about maybe doing a, um, a wedding chapel um, and maybe a, a little conference center uh, for Christian conferences. Wow, that's really great. How wonderful is that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and so they put some, some earnest money down on it. And then um, during the period between that and closing, um, you know, uh, a friend of yours comes and says, hey, wait a minute. You, you know, that's not what they're going to use it for. Right. And it's like, what do you mean? That's not what they're going to use it for. Um, you know, maybe at one time, but that's not who they are now. Well, what are they going to use it for? And you discover they're going to turn it into a strip club. Whoa. They're actually going to bulldoze the, the old church. They're going to put a building there. They're going to put a strip club in and an abortion clinic, you know, Man. maybe a couple other things that are, you know, wh whatever you in, in the audience listening uh, would, you know, would just hate that your old church would get turned into. Right. What are you going to do in that situation? You're going to tell them to take a hike. You're going to give them their check back and you're going to say, heck no, I am not going to, uh, right. to, to get the deals back. off deals off. Now you had given them a guarantee by taking that money, but you're going to renege on that guarantee because they didn't fulfill their part. They had represented themselves in a certain way to you. And then later it wasn't that representation anymore. And it was one that you would have never signed in the first place. Okay. Let's let's get into a couple of other questions that I just thought of while you were speaking a little earlier. One is this whole idea that eternal life is a benefit of the new covenant. What about people that were born and lived and died before the new covenant? Do they have eternal life too in your view and how do you account for that? My personal take on that is that uh, at the end of Revelation 20 when it says the rest of the dead uh, that I, I believe that those who are a part of the new covenant are given entrance into the kingdom. They're raised from the dead and, and enter into that kingdom, but that everybody else, I am a premillennialist, so I do believe that there's a, a time period between these two resurrections. Um, the, the, that when the rest of the dead are raised and judged, if their name is in the book of life, they'll enter into uh, eternal life at that point. And that it says that they are judged by their deeds. And so if a person never had the opportunity uh, that that um, to be a part of the new covenant, maybe because they lived in Indonesia in 200 BC or something, that they will be judged by their deeds. And I think we can look at, because Paul says in Romans that, you know, Gentiles can do uh, the word naturally, or I'm sorry, the law naturally, right? That and, and, and think about law, not in terms of the Mosaic law, but rather just God's law in general, you know, don't murder people, right? And the law written on their conscience yeah, or something. The law written on their conscience, you know, um, treat people fairly, right? Don't cheat them, 
and those kinds of things that if the person's deeds of their life, you know, Jesus will judge that, right? And determine whether he's going to allow that person into the kingdom or not. And I, it will be based on their deeds. Yeah. Just to push back on that a little bit, I, I, I'm just reminded of a couple of texts where Jesus talked about sitting at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Uh, it seems like he anticipates that they will be there. Of course, you know, maybe you could come back to me and say, well, that's not until a later stage in the kingdom. Oh, no, I don't I don't mean that. I, I think the believers of the Old Testament are part of that. Um, if, uh, as a premillennialist, I believe that that first resurrection includes all believers. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I was getting a different understanding. Sorry, from you, I, I, uh, I but... may have said it confusing. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the hinge, right, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He keeps the law. Well, let me ask you, do you believe Jesus kept the law? I do. I think he fulfilled it. And Jesus also taught the new covenant. Yeah. Right. So that's what I mean by he's he's kind of like an overlapping stage where he's got he's got to keep the Sabbath and keep kosher eating habits, but at the same time he's he's bringing out this new way of living at the same time. Is that how you? Yeah. I think I, of I it. Think, I think as the representative of Israel, he fulfilled the terms of the Mosaic covenant. Right, that uh, what God, you know, wanted Israel to be, Jesus was. But God is also ready uh, to institute a new covenant, and He's going to do that through Jesus. And so, at the same time, Jesus is fulfilling, as the representative King of Israel, uh, the Mosaic covenant. He's also instituting the new covenant and so he's teaching people that here's what your my expectation for you is under this covenant mm -hmm. yeah that's how i think of it too w what else would you like to say about the new covenant and what it means to be a new covenant person as opposed to uh just a, a classic dispensationalist as far as lifestyle today well, I think the um, the other big thing is to know what are your responsibilities under the covenant, right? As a member of the new covenant, um, you just like the Israelites under <clears throat> the Mosaic covenant, they basically agreed to certain responsibilities. And so God was expecting them to fulfill those responsibilities. And so we are agreeing to certain responsibilities, whether you're aware of what they are or not, you're agreeing to them. You think about when you buy some new software, and you load it onto your computer, I bet you didn't read that EULA, right? You probably just said, clicked the I agree button and didn't actually read that big long contract. Right. Well, yeah. you, you are still obligated to the terms of that contract, even though you didn't read it, right? So when you signed up for the new covenant, you are responsible for your responsibilities in, under that covenant. So I think it's really important to understand, okay, what are the commandments of the new covenant? What are our responsibilities to, to God and to Jesus and to one another under the new covenant? So here's a few. I think that um, th this is not exhaustive, but I think this is a pretty good list. I'd like to start off John uh, with John 13, 34, where Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I think that's... Uh, uh, especially a big deal because it's actually a little different than the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself, which which obviously is is also a, a good commandment. It's, it's something that we should do and that kind of stuff. But this is a little different because Jesus is saying this is a new commandment, and he's saying love one another even as I have loved you. And we know he's when he says this, he's about to go uh, die for them. And so the kind of love that he expects us to have towards one another is a self-sacrificial love. And uh, so I think that's first and foremost of, of our commandments and our responsibilities, that we have a responsibility to be self-sacrificially loving towards each other as Christians. Okay. Uh, next, uh, this is from Matthew 28, 19 through 20. I think this is a, um, a, a good verse. Uh, he says, uh, actually a couple of verses, 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we have a responsibility to help at least in the process of making disciples and teaching them. And you may not be a teacher in the body of Christ, um, but you do have a responsibility uh, to be a part of the process, right? That this is, this is a commandment in, in a general sense to every believer. And, and you have some part to play in this. Um, it may be directly in evangelism. It might be supporting an evangelist. It might be helping solidify something that a teacher has said. Uh, it might be helping in some way or fashion uh, ministries involved in any aspect of the body of Christ. Whatever that is for you, that's a part of this. And you have a responsibility to carry that out. Next one, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Uh, this is one that uh, some people don't uh, like to hear, but there it is. It is a commandment <laughs> of the Lord. Um, We're getting into some spicy material oh, here. That's yep, good. Yep. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. This is a command. This is not Paul's recommendation. This is a commandment from the Lord that the wife should not leave her husband but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So we have a commandment not to divorce, right? And as Christians, now Paul's going to go on to say that this, this doesn't apply to non-Christians. It doesn't even really apply to a Christian who's married to an unbeliever. But to two Christians, this absolutely does apply, that we are commanded not to divorce. So this is hard for some people to hear. It is a sin for Christians to divorce. And what I like to tell people, if, if you're in that situation, if you've sinned, what do you do? You repent. repent. Right. Yeah. And don't do it again. Right. Repent. Don't do it again. Uh, and this is no different than anything else. But it is a direct commandment from the Lord. And I think there's a lot more to this than just the simple thing about uh, about divorce. And I, I won't really go into that uh, today. But I think this is much deeper, that this is a commandment about a level of commitment that we're supposed to have that Jesus and God expect us to have in marriage that goes way beyond just not divorcing somebody. Then Acts uh, 1730, uh, this is actually a commandment under the new covenant for all of mankind. That's an interesting little thing. Uh, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So there's actually a commandment under the new covenant to all of mankind which is interesting. And uh, some people are going to obey that, some are not. It's also interesting that it says all people everywhere to repent, that he commands all people everywhere. It doesn't really sound like he has a limited chosen few that he wants to repent. No. He wants everyone to repent. He wants everybody to repent, and, and, and for good reason, because he loves to forgive people who repent. You know, I think he's always looking for our repentance. We are going to mess up. We tend towards sin. Uh, you know, God is not unaware of that, uh, but he wants us to repent um, and and loves to forgive us. Think about the parable of the, the prodigal son, right? The father in that is God, and he is so eager to forgive the son and welcome him in and celebrate his repentance, his coming back to life. Uh, so it's a commandment to everybody to do that. Second Thessalonians has a little interesting section here, uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 12. It says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you go. Whoa, big command. You, yeah, this is a command from the Lord, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now, he's dealing with a particular example 
of unruliness and uh, an undisciplined life, a chaotic, sinful life that is, uh, you know, off the rails. It's certainly not the kind of righteous, godly uh, life that God intends us for us to to, to live and 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 be encourage one another, be an example to one another regarding. And so the example here he's he's using because he's dealing with that particular problem. But the commandment goes beyond just this particular problem that we're to keep away from every brother who leads that kind of life, right? And this is yeah, not it just the, says unruly life. Yeah, whatever. That's a general term, but then he focuses on a specific in this particular church, right? This particular problem that they were having. But yeah, you know, there's other examples. Um, you know, he's going to deal with the Corinthians with a particular guy who's sleeping with his his stepmother, right? And you know, and he's going to tell them, don't you know, do, do that with him either. I wonder if the eating here actually has to do with the, the Lord's Supper and gathering together. In other words, he's telling them, don't allow them into your, your church service, basically. I see. Yeah. Uh, and that's possible. But the idea is church discipline is a legitimate commandment from the Lord. And we're not supposed to just allow any old thing going on. We're supposed to have church discipline. We're supposed to have the God-given set of standards and hold one another accountable to them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5 says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. All right, so there you go. Uh, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So there's a a good general one. And this is one where we have a pretty big problem uh, in our world today and certainly exists in uh, the church today. I had not too long ago, I had a situation with a young couple that, that I was you know, working with and who were living together and weren't married. They were engaged, but not married. So, you know, I had to sit down and say, okay, what's going on? And, and understood the situation. It was financially motivated. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but you know, we need to honor God here. God doesn't, can't be doing this. And be honoring God because, you know, this is the kind of stuff that he says. So we, you know, went through the process and got them married quickly and, you know, to, uh, to, to take care of that problem. And I think that, you know, that's a a particular problem in our current culture Mm -hmm. is the, the tremendous looseness regarding, uh, sexual immorality and the, and the tolerance even within the church of sexual immorality. Not that we're supposed to judge those outside the church. None of this has to do with judging people outside the church. I don't think it's appropriate, you, you know, applying these same standards, our application of these same standards to homosexuals or, or whatever. This is strictly within the church, but we are supposed to do it. We are supposed to hold each other accountable to these things, helping each other in a spirit of gentleness to get back on the right track, to repent and, and get back on the right track. What I find interesting about this list of scriptures that you have just gone through here, in particular, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Thessalonians 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, is that these are three instances where the Apostle Paul really breaks the mold of the old dispensationalism that you and I both had held to, uh, which uh, was a a classic mid-Acts dispensationalism that looked at Jesus commands as not at all uh, relevant for the church age. And uh, so, but what is Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 7? He's, he's going back to Jesus' command in Matthew 5 and also 19, where he talks about marriage and divorce. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and then in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, we give you a command by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You know, so it's it's it, Jesus is very much involved in Paul's thinking here in these commands. And if we look at the teachings uh, that Paul gives the different churches in how to live, they really do line up with what Jesus taught previously. Not that they're identical, because the situation is so different. Jesus is speaking to a 100% Jewish context, more or less, and uh, Paul's talking to mixed groups that are in metropolitan pagan cities. Uh, so, you know, there, there are significant differences as well, but uh, just the continuity is really, really noteworthy here. I think and, for, uh, for people who um, have the idea that Paul introduced 
you know, something completely different, that he received this revelation directly from the Lord, and it was different than what uh, was taught before. I certainly did this with myself. I would direct them to Paul's statement that when he went to meet with the apostles in Jerusalem, one of the things that he was doing was verifying that the gospel that he was preaching was actually the right gospel, and that he confirmed that with them, that they were like, yep, that's the right gospel. So he was just teaching the same thing that they were teaching. Um, that it wasn't different. But Jesus was working with all of these apostles. And uh, and it was the same message that he was, as you, you were pointing out, same message that he was teaching before he was crucified and raised from the dead. All right, well, we got to wrap up here. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the subject? I would just encourage anyone listening to this that has come is in the same place that that I was. That education is the key. Do some digging into the history of dispensationalism. Uh, learn about the different forms. Learn about the how it's been revised over time and why it is that dispensational scholars over the last seventy years have rejected things like mid-ex dispensationalism. You know, why did they do that? And grow in your knowledge. And I think you'll find, like I did, that you know what. Um, there's a lot of benefit to that. Yeah. If we could make a computer analogy, which I know you're fond of as an IT uh, entrepreneur yourself, what's the first computer you remember? I had an Apple IIe. Okay. So you've got the Apple IIe and what what was the full range of its of its uh, capabilities? I mean, we're talking about a monochrome screen. Yeah. I started off with a monochrome screen. No disc drive or did it have a disc? I had two floppy drives. I had okay. no hard drive. Five and a quarter inch floppy. Five and a quarter, five and a quarter inch floppy drive. Uh-huh. I had 64K of RAM. Okay. Now talk to me about what kind of sound card and speakers you had. I did not have a sound card to begin with. I did. What kind of CD-ROM did you have? Uh, there was there wasn't such a thing at the time. How many USB ports did you have? And there wasn't such a thing at the time. How did you get on the internet and go to websites? There wasn't such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's my point. So like, you know, you if if you want to call classic dispensationalism that Apple IIe, and we could call the revised version, I don't know, a 486 SX 500 megahertz machine from you know like the late 90s, early 2000s. Where you know it's got a CD-ROM and it, it does have internet, but it has to make a phone call and interrupt the other people in the house that might be desiring to use the phone, and uh, the, the internet speeds are incredibly slow. Downloading a picture is just like one pixel at a time until it finally uh, prints on the screen, right? And you're using Windows 3.1, so that's like the revised dispensationalism. And then progressive would include all the computers that we have in the more modern era where they have multiple CPUs in them, quad core and whatnot. And, you know, the internet is sort of baked into the design from the start and half of our computers, maybe more are in our pockets anyhow, and have total connectivity, even when we're not on Wi-Fi in a Wi-Fi area. So, I mean, if you're interested in using a computer, why in the world would you want an Apple IIe today? just for the sake of nostalgia, I guess. I mean, there's literally nothing that machine can do better than a modern machine. So as with dispensationalism, if you're going to be a dispensationalist, why in the world would you want to use an 1800s formulation of it when they've made so much progress in improving this theory over time? Is that a fitting analogy? You think? Yeah, that's a that's a great analogy. I, I've got a, another analogy that, that I like to use for this from my own perspective and anyone else with my same background is uh, the, the analogy of margarine and butter. So okay. in the 1950s, it was taught that margarine was better for you than butter. Um, today, we know the opposite is true. In fact, margarine is basically poison. And uh, <laughs> wow. yeah, they're, they're, you just should not eat uh, trans fats. That all the, the epidemic of heart attacks and stuff like that in the mid 20th century were likely caused by people consuming trans fats and especially in uh, things like margarine. And so believing a mid-axe dispensationalism today is kind of like believing that margarine is better for you than butter today. (laughs) You just don't know that. No, no, no. They figured out that that's not the case. Right. And you need to educate yourself 
on the fact that 70 years ago, yeah, that's what people thought and believed. But today, no, they know that's not true anymore. Yeah. Uh, very good. Well, thanks for taking the time again for this episode. And your demeanor is not to blow dispensationalism out of the water or make fun of it or make fun of people that believe in it. Uh, but it's just to, to bring people forward in their understanding of it and uh, also to hold it kind of loosely in your hand rather than with a clenched fist and really just see if we can't allow the scriptures to determine for us how they interpret themselves, really. Um, what are the the natural barriers that we see in Scripture between the covenants and so on. So uh, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Sean. Well, that concludes this interview. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to get in touch with John Truitt, you can contact him through his website, allegiancetotheking.org, or by joining his Facebook group for Allegiance to the King. You can find that just by searching Allegiance to the King, or I have the link in the show notes for this episode. This is episode 311 evaluating dispensationalism part two also if you'd like to attend the 20s and 30s christian conference in paducah kentucky which is june 12th to 14th this year 2020 uh, you can get in touch on the facebook page 20s and 30s christian conference and that link also is in the show notes you can get there on restitutio.org look for episode 312 or you can see it in the show notes on your device before closing out, I wanted to read out some comments on the previous episode, episode 311, which was part one of our discussion. Kenneth Laprade writes, Thanks, Sean and John, for this conversation, which for me was mostly a walk down memory lane and my gradual awareness of my own bit-by-bit struggles with cognitive dissonance for decades. Similar to what John mentioned, I did not realize that I had been stuck in an outdated version of dispensationalism, already abandoned by many progressive scholars, until much later. Though it can be painful to undergo major paradigm shifts, it can be so beautifully rewarding for one to wrestle with certain subtle preconceived lens filters and to then see biblical covenants in light of Jesus' kingdom message, with a clearer hope and a focused view of what obedience to Jesus' lordship really means. Raymond Scott writes, Great discussion with John Truitt. Looking forward to part two. David S. Jones writes, One thing that attracts me to dispensationalism is that it is the only thing that I have encountered that gives a convincing explanation for why there has been at least an almost 2,000-year gap between the first 69 sevens of Daniel's prophecy, which all occurred without interruption, and the 70th seven. I have asked people hostile to dispensationalism to explain this several times, and I have not yet received any explanation. David is here referring to Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks, or 77s, which many interpret to be seven sevens of years, or heptads, so that after 69 sevens of years, which I believe is 483 years or whatever, that there is a prophecy from around the time of Nehemiah that spans to about the year Jesus was crucified, and it lines up very nicely. But then that 70th seven, that last seven years, is, at least according to dispensationalist prophecy interpretation, split off from the previous 69, and that is yet to be fulfilled just before the coming of Christ, or just after the coming of Christ, depending on if you're pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation for the rapture. So uh, my question to any of you out there who maybe know this, is this distinctly dispensationalist? In other words, do you have to be a dispensationalist to split off that 70th seven? And what's the other option for my Amil friends out there and those who don't see this prophecy from a futurist perspective? How do you interpret the 70th year of the Daniel 9 prophecy. I'd be curious to hear what that is. That's a great question, David. I don't have a, I don't have a firm answer for you on that, but uh, I'd be curious to hear what others have to say. Then another bloke, this one called David Seaborn Jones, uh, obviously a relative of David S. Jones, uh, writes in and says, as usual, this was an interesting podcast, and I'd like to thank John Truitt for his presentation. But I would also like to say the following. Mr. Truitt gives as one of his reasons for leaving dispensationalism his great discomfort at the idea of Jesus being wrong in the dispensationalist framework. 
I can understand his discomfort at this, but the ineluctable fact is that Jesus was mistaken about the timing of the kingdom. He clearly believed and obviously stated that it was imminent. He repeatedly said that it had arrived or approached in Gikin, which is a Greek word for has drawn near. And he said to his 12 disciples, in truth, I tell you, you will not have gone around the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He also said to the twelve, In truth, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming with his kingdom. This obviously does not refer to the transfiguration, as some people claim, because the preceding verse says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his deeds. Verse 27. This did not happen at the transfiguration. And besides, you do not need to tell a group of 12 young men that, that some of them will not die before an event occurs when the event is to occur in the next six or eight days. None of them died before the transfiguration. Jesus also said to his disciples, talking of the end times events, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Some people give various far-fetched explanations for these three imminent sayings of the Lord in Matthew, with a different explanation for each one. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus is saying the same thing each time, and there is but one explanation for them all, namely, that he believed that his return to establish the kingdom was imminent. You thought my comment about miraculous healings was a bit short, so this one is a little longer. Wow, David, this is deep, man. Good question, good comment. Uh, the only thing I, I'm really missing out here is your solution. <laughs> you don't really tip your hand very much explaining where what angle you're coming from here, but let's consider the options briefly. One option, we might call this the Bart Ehrman option, is to say that Jesus is just a false prophet, uh, building on the work of uh, Albert Schweitzer, that uh, Jesus just got it wrong. You know, he threw himself on the wheel, hoping to bring about the kingdom, and he was crushed underneath it. Uh, so deeply dissatisfying explanation, and uh, I certainly hope that's not where you're coming from. Another is to say, along with the dispensationalists, uh, that Jesus, Jesus was right, just like maybe Jonah the prophet was right to predict the coming destruction and that that destruction was coming on Nineveh, and then they repented. Well, in this case, it's exactly the opposite. Jesus predicted the coming kingdom, and then they didn't believe in Jesus as their Messiah. They rejected him, they called him Beelzebul, they strung him up, they crucified him, and in so doing, they postponed the kingdom until a later time. So that's another possible scenario. A third is that these various explanations are not so far-fetched as you claim they are, uh, that there are legitimate explanations for why Jesus could say that uh, they would not have finished going two by two through the various towns until the Son of Man came, that that is actually referring to Jesus himself. He's talking about himself in the third person there, that he would come and preach in those towns before they would have finished uh, going around. The second one does refer to the transfiguration, Matthew 16, 28, where it says that no one will die until they see the Son of Man coming with his kingdom, and that when Jesus, in the very next chapter, was transfigured before them, they saw a vision of the kingdom. They saw a resurrected Moses, a resurrected Elijah, and they saw Jesus transformed and glorified and this is something that we know will happen in on the last day when Jesus comes back to resurrect. And we also know that this was clearly a vision because when they were going down the mountain in uh, verse 9, Matthew 17, 9, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. I think it's in Second Peter that this is also mentioned again. But uh, anyhow, that is... Uh, I don't think that's far-fetched. I think that's that's uh, narrative placement, in fact. Uh, all, th all three of the Synoptic Gospels do exactly the same thing. They have this prediction, and then they have the transfiguration immediately following it. But, you know, you do make some good points here as well. And then the third one, uh, this generation will not pass away. My interpretation on that, I think I, I, think I got this from RT France, uh, is the idea that this generation refers to 
the generation that sees all the signs Jesus had just mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, starting with the abomination of desolation. And so he's not talking to the people in front of him necessarily. He's talking to this generation that sees all these things happen, that essentially from the time that these things start happening, it will be within that generation's lifespan that everything will find its fulfillment. And now again, you might you might find that far-fetched, uh, but there are other interpretations that people take on this. I know that Anthony Buzzard is fond of the this generation referring to this race, I guess like the Jewish nation, won't pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And I know that there are at least a couple of other options there as well. So then another possibility that is embraced by a whole bunch of Christians is to say that Jesus did in fact bring the kingdom in the sense that he inaugurated the kingdom. This is George Eldon Ladd who says already but not yet, Jesus brought the kingdom. Uh, Jesus is the king of the kingdom. So when Jesus is standing there talking to you, guess what? You're talking to an ambassador of the kingdom. And so the kingdom is near when Jesus is near. And that with his death and resurrection, that he established the kingdom in a very limited sense, in an inaugural sense, but not in a consummate sense that he will do when he returns in glory to fully consummate and establish that kingdom in all the earth. That now it's here in mustard seed form in the church. And I know a number of Christians, including, I believe, N.T. Wright, goes that direction with it. But, uh, hey, there are a lot of different options here. Carlos writes, the ineluctable fact is that this would make Jesus a false prophet. Uh, so Carlos is concerned that David is here um, forsaking Jesus. You know, the r- real reason why so many of us believe in Jesus who have come across this particular question um, and, and still continue to believe in Jesus is because of the solid, airtight evidence for the resurrection. If, if we didn't have such a great case for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus and we just had these sayings of Jesus and there was all this confusion about it, I think it would be a real potential defeater to belief in Jesus. But considering the fact God has vindicated his son and done so in this elaborate, very powerful manner of resurrection from the dead, that this, in fact, shows us that Jesus is not a false prophet with respect to uh, the Bart Ehrmans of the world, that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and that Jesus is, in fact, going to return to fulfill all those prophecies that we read about throughout Scripture. Uh, so this is an interesting question, and I would love to hear what what David's solution is, as well as to hear what your solution is, dear listeners. So if you have a better solution, or if you want to commend one of the explanations that I brought forward as to what what is going on with all these timing references in the uh, Gospel of Matthew in particular, but other places as well. What is your take on it? So I would love to hear that. Come on to restitutio.org and leave your comments. This way we can get all the options out there. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. I've got an exciting, exclusive interview with Will Barlow, uh, who left the Way International three years ago, and he's, he's going to tell about his experience and what it was like being part of that group in recent history, as well as the reasons why he left and uh, the launch of his own ministry, Study Driven Faith. So stay tuned for that next week, and we'll see you then. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.